Jerusalem is one of the great cities of the world. It's been continuously inhabited for thousands of years. King David conquered it and made it the capital of the nation of Israel. And even today, many visitors come from all over the world, especially Christian pilgrims, to be in what we call the Holy Land, in particular Jerusalem, which where Jesus um, spent some of his time. He would go to worship in the Jerusalem temple, and he would also offer his life there. And so as a Christian pilgrim, when I went there, the most significant thing for me was to be in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is built around the spot where Jesus died. And then I got to um, actually celebrate Mass on the stone which Jesus' body was laid and from, from which he rose from the dead. That was a very beautiful experience. I also went and saw where many of the Jewish pilgrims would go to pray. And the chief prayer site was a place called the Western Wall. And maybe you've heard of it, sometimes called the Wailing Wall. And they'll have little pieces of paper with prayers they will insert, and they will pray, asking God for certain things, but also um, to mourn. They would mourn the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And this is what Jesus is talking about in today's gospel. As he's standing in front of the temple and people are admiring how beautiful it is, he says the days are going to come when this is going to be destroyed completely, level to the ground. And Jesus then goes on to describe uh, all the really important things that would happen before them. He goes and describes what would happen between the year 33 AD and the year 70 AD. The uh, Jews revolted against the Romans around 66 AD. In fact, there had been other attempts beforehand. And the Romans sent many legions who surrounded the city, laid siege to it, and ended up destroying, killing, Josephus says, a million people and leveling the temple. Now, um, all the things that Jesus said happened just as he described. In fact, Josephus also reports that when the siege of Jerusalem was happening, the Roman army surrounded it, that people saw these amazing lights in the skies, Jesus said, would happen before the destruction of the temple. Now, this gospel comes from something that scholars call the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, if we keep reading, will then transition from, from this event, uh, the end, in a sense, of, of the age of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, to something he calls, only briefly, the time of the Gentiles. And he says, when that time is fulfilled, then the Son of Man will return. You will see him on the clouds, coming in power and glory. So then he's talking about the end of the world, the end of history. And this is something that many of the Old Testament prophets spoke about. The last day, sometimes they called it the day of the Lord. It would be a day of judgment in which the uh, wicked would be punished, and the righteous would be vindicated. And Malachi describes that, or God describes it through Malachi, um, as a day of judgment by fire. For proud and evildoers, it will be a fire of destruction. For those who fear the Lord, it will be a fire of salvation. It will be the healing rays of the sun of justice. Now this theme we see throughout the scriptures of of God's judgment in which the wicked will be punished and uh, those who are faithful will be, will be vindicated, will be saved. We see this, for example, Moses. Moses, when the people enter a covenant with the Lord, he explains to them there is a way of life and a way of death. This is kind of a very binary thing. You know, the way of life, fidelity to the covenant, obedience to the commandments, a life of justice and mercy and of worshiping the one true God, 
He says, you live, you follow that way, you will prosper, you will live, you'll have abundant life. But if you're unfaithful, right, uh, if you ignore justice and are, and are selfish and worship other gods, you will die, you will be destroyed. Right? Now, when it's presented like that, it seems like a pretty you know, easy choice to make, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you want, to, you want to go on the way of life? No. There's various reasons why people don't walk the way of life. One, one reason is because it can be hard, certainly, to deny ourselves. But also, too, we, people do not always see the cause and effect relationship here. There's another question that gets raised throughout the scriptures. And this is the question, actually, that elicits God's prophecy through Malachi in the first reading. If you go to the book and you go back and read a few verses, God is observing how people... They say, this is what they say. They say, it is useless to serve God. What do we gain by observing God's requirements? Evildoers not only prosper, but even test God and escape. And so this is something that we see too, and maybe that also causes us to wonder, is it worth it to be good? Because we look in the world, and oftentimes, uh, good do, you know, suffer and don't seem to prevail, and the wicked seem to prosper. And so God is warning us not to be deceived by the apparent and temporary prospering of evildoers. Sometimes we do see in this world, we see wickedness punished, and it's very satisfying. I watched a, um, a documentary recently on a woman named Elizabeth Holmes. She started a company called Theron. I don't know if you've heard of this, but uh, there was many... Um, many important people, former secretaries of states and all these people who, who uh, supported her in this company. And the company was supposed to um, design a machine that would take a prick of your finger, take a little bit of blood, and be able to uh, do 200 blood tests. That's what they were saying they were going to do, right? And, um, and everyone was excited about it. And she almost became like a cult figure. Like I was watching this documentary and people were like almost like worshiping her. And... Uh, but what happened was they were lying. It was a big scam. They couldn't do what they said they were going to do, and they kept lying, saying that they were, they, were, they were able to do it. So many, many people lost their money. They were defrauded. And she eventually got exposed, and she got charged and convicted, and she's about to be sentenced. And so when you see that, you're like, well, yes, that's how things should be. But then you have someone like Joseph Stalin. He's the biggest mass murderer in all of human history. And he died still in power at the age of 74 of a massive stroke. He murdered, oh, well over 20 million people. At the very least, he should have had a long and painful cancer, right? When he died. Of course, he does face, he has faced his personal judgment, and he will, at the end of history, be judged in the general judgment, as we all will. Now, for those who are faithful, Jesus promises them salvation, but he says that they, they will suffer, especially through persecution for his name. Um, he tells them that they're being hated by the world and being persecuted uh, and being you know, uh, tried and interrogated would give them an opportunity to bear witness to the truth. And... So the word martyr means witness. That's what it means. We think a martyr is someone who dies for their faith, but it literally means witness. And this, is, this was fulfilled. Everything Jesus said, certainly in that period until the destruction of Jerusalem Temple, 
But this actually is a permanent feature of Christianity until the end of history. So we know in the book of Acts, we know Stephen, for example, and James were martyred. Uh, and then we look throughout Christian history. There's uh, the, martyr, uh, the martyrs from Nero and many Roman emperors and throughout the world in many places and many times. Now, 360 million Christians live in countries with high levels of persecution. So that's one in seven. There's an organization called Open Doors which investigates this and which ranks the most difficult places it is to follow Jesus. The top five most difficult places are Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. But the place where the most Christians are being killed is Nigeria. So over the last 13 years, 45,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria by Islamic militants. In fact, this past June 5th in the Feast of Pentecost in a parish named St. Francis Xavier, the faithful there gathered to celebrate the Mass in this town called Owo, and gunmen came in, they had explosives, they were shooting up everybody, and when they were done, there was victims lying on the floor in pools of blood. There's no even a dispute about exactly how many people were killed. There's something strange going on with the Nigerian government regarding these activities. Anywhere between 40 and 80 people were killed in this attack. There's a priest there who is ministering to this traumatized community. I mean, there's a, the people who are survived and wounded, people who lost their families, who were there. And this is what he says. This is what he said, uh, I think, a, a month or two later. He says, speaking of, of that community, that parish, we are continuing to proclaim and witness the gospel. God has chosen us to be a witness to his love so that everyone will come to terms with the fact that we are children of one Father and that humanity needs to be saved together. Now that is something amazing that someone can say. It's not a natural thing. Right? The natural thing would be to be dispirited, be filled with vengeance and, and hatred, depression, and you can see the grace of Christ at work in this priest and in this community. So I want us to be mindful of all of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are suffering for the faith. We should remember them, we should pray for them, and we should be inspired by them. We get to practice our faith here relatively freely. Uh, and yet I think that sometimes um, we don't experience the persecution we should experience because we're a bit cowardly in proclaiming our faith. Think, for example, of Proposition 1, which was just passed. The majority of the voters of the state of California uh, voted to have abortion as a constitutional right in our state. And this is something that we spoke about here from the pulpit. We sent you emails about it. We were encouraging you to vote no. I certainly hope that all of you voted no. But beyond that, did you, did you try to convince any friends or family members about it? I think that maybe some of you thought, well, it's going to pass anyways. What difference does it make? But even if you get a few people to change their minds on this, that's an important thing. Because everyone who voted yes on this is going to have to answer to God at the judgment. They are, in a sense, signing on to taking responsibility for all the murders of, of children that happen in our state. And, and we don't want them to have that on their conscience at the judgment. 
Certainly you want them to repent of it if they do. So, we think of the Christians who are willing to die for their faith. What about us? Are we willing to even maybe suffer some negative feedback? Some strange relationships with family and friends? We should be willing, certainly. First, for Jesus Christ, who died for us. We should be willing to at least suffer for him. But also, too, for all, all people, because we want them to be saved. Jesus did not want the destruction of Jerusalem. He, in fact, the Gospels describe him when he's considering what's going to happen as weeping. He wishes to gather all, the, all, the, all of his, his brethren, his, his relatives, his blood relatives, the Jewish people, to gather them, as he says, as a mother hen gathers her chicks. And their salvation he made available to them. If only, he says, they could realize the time of their visitation. If they could realize that in him, God had come to them. That he was the Messiah that they were waiting for. You see, what happened was this. They rejected Jesus and instead, over the next few decades, different men put themselves forward as so-called messiahs. That is, they led revolts against the Romans and they believed that that was God's will, that God was going to help them to destroy, defeat the Roman Empire through, through military means, through violence. Um, and it didn't work at all. In fact, this, that's what resulted in the destruction. Finally, the, the Roman emperor said that's enough and they sent several legions to destroy the city. Do you know something? Jesus eventually conquered Rome. And how did he conquer Rome? Through its conversion, right? There's no emperors in Rome, but there's a pope, right? That's how Jesus did it. That's how Jesus wants to save us. The Messiah conquered Rome by his precious blood shed and by the blood of martyrs. And he will continue to do so if we are willing to also be his witness, willing to suffer for the truth.